Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Professor Peter Konitsky and his new book, Eavesdropping on the Emperor, Interrogators and Codebreakers in Britain's War with Japan. It was published by Hertz Publishers last year. Uh, Professor Konitsky, Peter, is Emeritus Professor of Japanese at the University of Cambridge. He wrote, well, he writes many influential works on the literary and book history of early modern Japan, as well as the East Asian writing system. This book um, revisits the historical accounts about how the British intelligence trained specialists to learn Japanese during the Second World War in order to decode Japanese messages, uh, which is an interesting topic. So uh, welcome, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I am so excited. I'm trying very hard to not scream. But can you tell our audience a bit uh, about your research? What do you research about? What do you um, write about nowadays? Well, for most of my career, I've worked in general about the way in which books and texts have impacted upon society, principally in Japan, but also in other countries in East Asia. So I've worked on uh, the way in which printing had an impact on the way texts were presented and how they circulated. I've written also about manuscripts and the role they played within print societies and the way imports moved around um, around East Asia so that books traveled from China to Japan or from Japan to Korea and so on. Um, and the book that really encapsulates an awful lot of my work is um, the book that came out in 2018, Language Scripts and Chinese Texts in East Asia, where I tracked the movement of Chinese texts and looked at the way in which they were read. Because so many of us have taken for granted the fact that, for example, the Analects of Confucius were read throughout East Asia. But I was asking questions like, how were they read? Um, and in what ways did they make sense to readers in Vietnam, in Japan, in Korea, uh, as well as in various parts of China itself? Um, so it, 
it started out mostly working on Japan, but uh, increasingly expanded to the whole of East Asia because I saw the, the book roads, the ways in which books moved around and text circulated, uh, mostly in uh, what we call classical Chinese, had a huge impact on all those societies. And it impacted them in, in slightly different ways, which is interesting because the texts were the same. So in a nutshell, that's what I've been working on. Yes, uh, I loved that 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 book. It was fascinating. I love all your books, actually. Um, this one's a bit different, however. So, can you briefly tell us uh, what this book is about? This book is about learning Japanese during the war, um, and it's quite a different sort of book from anything that I've undertaken before. But it was undertaken because I was pushed in that direction by a very good friend, um, Hugh Cortazzi, who used to be the British ambassador in Japan in the early 1980s. Um, after he retired as an ambassador, Hugh began to put out a series of volumes which collected the biographies of individuals, either British or Japanese, who have played some part in the relations between Britain and Japan over the centuries. Um, and these small biographies are usually very well researched. Uh, and he asked me to write one about somebody called John McEwen. Now, I doubt if any of your listeners have heard of him, um, but he was a scholar of Ogu Sorai who arrived in Cambridge in 1947 and left in 1963. He had, sad to say, a nervous breakdown and he left academia at that point. Um, so he asked me to write a, a biography of him and I began to wonder, how did somebody who arrived in Cambridge in 1947 already know enough Japanese to be able to be working on Ogu Sorai? Um, so I dug around in the, to his autobiography. I found out where his sister and her son uh, lived, got in touch with them, got some material for them. And gradually my interest in the contemporary archive of uh, Japanese studies during the war grew. So out of that one short piece, which I wrote for Hugh Cortazzi, um, I became aware of archive resources that had just not been touched since the end of the war. And that began to draw my interest. That's amazing. Um so how was um, the historical background of these events uh, are like that, that, that are covered in this chapter? Um, right, so well, to take ourselves back to, um, to the 1930s, which is really a very different world from the one we, we have today. Think, for example, of the fact that um, in the 1930s, a... Japanese Navy uh, captain called Ichimaru Tota uh, was writing books saying Japan must fight Britain or uh, Japan will not lose a war with America. So these were very provocative titles and they were translated uh, into English and published in the United States uh, and in Britain. But the same kind of rhetoric was happening the other way too. There was an Englishman called Hector Bywater who lived in the United States and wrote a very influential book called The Great Pacific War. That was published as early as 1925. And in that book, he imagined a war between the United States and uh, Japan starting with a surprise attack by the Japanese Navy Air Force on the US fleet. You know, almost exactly what happened at Pearl Harbor, only he doesn't imagine it happening at Pearl Harbor, but in uh, Manila. Uh, which, of course, was under uh, American uh, control at the time. Um, and that's another important thing we have to keep in mind, that 
If we look at things from Japan's point of view in the 1930s, Japan was really surrounded by societies which were occupied by uh, various parts of the colonial empires. There were, of course, the French were in Vietnam, Britain was in Malaya, Singapore and Hong Kong. And you also had uh, the Americans in the Philippines uh, and so on. So. Um, one can understand, uh, particularly in retrospect, though few people at the time tried to understand it, how nervous Japan would be about having these outposts of uh, extremely powerful naval and military nations not far off uh, the coast of Japan. And then on top of that, we have the war in China, begun in 1937, which led to an oil embargo by Britain, the Netherlands and the United States. So the tensions were growing all this time. Um, most people uh, did not pinpoint uh, a date when they thought the war would start. They, they put it far into the future. They were perhaps engaging in wishful thinking. And much as we have done really with the war in Ukraine, for example, um, people could see uh, the Russian takeover of Crimea, but didn't really think that through to what might happen next. And that same thing was happening in, in the 1930s. But there were some people who were beginning to think about this quite carefully um, in Britain and America and in Japan. And in Britain, they were already working on Japanese codes from the 1920s, uh, which is really very, very early. Um, so the, the background to, to this book is um, the gradual breakdown in international relations, um, a sense of being threatened by Japan, um, unwillingness to, to give in to any of the great powers, uh, and a belief in the almost invincibility of their army and navy, plus a sense, and this is important, plus a sense that the Japanese language was itself a code, um, that you, all you have to do is speak in Japanese or write in Japanese, and what foreigners are going to be able to read it? Nobody. That was the, you know, that's the background um, bef well before Pearl Harbor. So is this, uh, this difficulty about Japanese, what you refer to as the huge language imbalance between Japanese and English, um, what was the, yeah, why was it so difficult uh, for people at the time to interpret Japanese codes, uh, like the Japanese Morse code, for example? Yeah, well, um if most of your listeners will, I think, know about the uh, story of the Enigma machines um, in the war with Germany. Um, so the problem there was with understanding how those machines worked and cracking the codes. But once you crack the code, then what you get out is German. And there were a lot of people in the United States, in Britain and other places who knew German, even who knew military German. So that wasn't such a big problem. The problem in the case of the Japanese codes was not so much the codes but what to do with the Japanese you get out of it. And that's where the imbalance came. Think, for example, of um, the leaders of the Japanese Navy. Uh, take Yamamoto Isoroku, for example, the famous um, admiral of the fleet who was the architect of the uh, Pearl Harbor attacks. Uh, he spent two years in Harvard. He had a good knowledge of English. Now, how many American admirals had a good knowledge of Japanese. How many British admirals had a good knowledge of Japanese? The answer is zero. And that is pretty stock. Um, there were some junior officers who certainly did have a knowledge of Japanese, but they were very low down the pecking order. So what we have here is in Japan, English being part of the curriculum, many, many Japanese learning English at school, others being sent to the United States or Britain or Australia, um, spending time there and, and getting a better knowledge of, of Japanese. 
Now, there were some people who were getting aware of this imbalance, and it's a serious imbalance, um, both on the American side and the British side. For example, in 1938, the British ambassador in Japan wrote uh, back to the War Office, the Ministry of Defence in London, to say, uh, look, it's looking more and more likely that there will be a war with Japan. And if that happens, then we've got to be prepared, not only militarily, but also linguistically. Now, you can't run crash courses, expect people to pick up Japanese very, very quickly. Um, So you need to start thinking now. That's in 1938. And the following year, the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, you know, also began to lobby the government saying, you know, if you want to have people who can read and write Japanese and and deal with codes, for example, you need to start training them now. Um, But of course, all those uh, requests were ignored um, until war broke out. Now, you are specifically about the Morse code. Um, the, the international Morse code that some of you will be familiar with, uh, where dot dash is an A, um, that applies to all alphabetic languages. Um, in some of those languages, when they have a diacritics like a, a U with an umlaut in German, they make a few extra Morse letters. But the, the basic Morse code uh, is the same. But, of course, Japanese has... In the Kana system, uh, a much larger number of symbols that need to be represented by Morse code. So the Japanese Morse code was completely different from that used internationally. So if you write dot dash dot dash, then in um, international Morse code, that signifies AA. But in, in the Japanese Morse code, that signifies the Kana syllable ro. R-O. So um, if uh, you are going to start listening to Japanese Morse code messages, to start off with, you need to forget all you know about international Morse and just tune into Japanese Morse. Um, That was a pretty tough ask. Um, A lot of the people who were trained to do that were, in fact, women um, who did extremely well in three weeks. They trained up a lot of um, members of the Women's Royal Naval Service in Britain to do that um, and then sent them out. They had three weeks immersion in uh, Japanese Morse, and then we were able to take down the Morse messages. So, you know, th- there was a, h- a huge imbalance, uh, not only in, in the levels of knowledge of each other's language in 1941, um, but also between the, d- the different Morse codes. Of course, uh, many Japanese were trained to listen to international Morse, um, but very, very few people in the US, Canada, Britain, Australia um, had a clue about Japanese Morse until the war actually started, and then they had to start paying attention. That is so interesting, and it might be something very fun to learn. It's almost like another form of paleography. Um, maybe I'll check it out later. Um, so then until around the 1940s, was there a lot of, um, well, based on what you've said, it sounds like there wasn't a lot of interest um, in learning Japanese in the West. So if people wanted to, how would they learn Japanese? Okay, well, then... Um- I mean, there were some people who who learnt Japanese, um, Americans, Brits, Australians, and Canadians, and so on. Um, some of them uh, grew up as the children of missionaries there. Um, so there are quite a lot of um, American missionaries in in pre-war Japan, and so they generated um, young men and women who grew up in Japan and had a pretty good knowledge of the language. So there was a small group of people who did have a, a knowledge of everyday spoken language. I mean, they weren't trained 
to understand military Japanese, of course, but they did have a good knowledge of the basic language. But back in the States, for example, um, there were eight universities, mostly Ivy League places in the ni- in 1940, which were already having Japanese language programs, um, Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Berkeley, and I, I forget the other four. So, you know, there, there were four universities uh, doing that. Um, and in Britain, there was just one, and that was the School of Oriental African Studies in London. Um, people were studying Japanese there, and there were one or two other small language schools in London, for example, and in, in Australia, in Melbourne and Sydney, where tiny numbers of people were learning Japanese. Um, even in the States and those big institutions, the numbers studying Japanese were really, really small. It was much more of a minority niche kind of choice um, than it became became much later. Uh, so uh, the opportunities were not great, but there were a few other people apart from the missionaries and those who went to, to universities. Uh, and those are people in the military. Um, what happened was that a system of uh, what were called language officers grew up in the early 20th century, um, which enabled people from the US, Britain and Australia to go to Japan and Japanese officers to go to Britain, Australia or or America. Uh, The British scheme started in 1903, the American in 1910 and the Australian one in 1921. So what happens? Um, Let's say you're... um, uh, a young American naval or army officer, you get sent to Japan. Um, you first of all uh, spend the first part of your two years in really intensive study in Tokyo uh, of the language. And then you get posted for maybe the last six months to a Japanese regiment or a Japanese ship. And uh, you begin to make bonds with, make links with uh Japanese army officers or naval officers, and you begin to learn the military language. Um, So there were, uh, again, small numbers of people being trained in this way, actually in the military, so they knew uh, the military language, but it was only one or two a year from each country. Um, So it's, it's pretty small numbers. And of course, as the 1930s went on, uh, it became more and more difficult to carry out these kind of activities, because a lot of uh, the latest Japanese ships and well-equipped Japanese regiments didn't want to have foreigners crawling around uh, seeing what they were up to. Earlier it worked well, but as the 30s went on, uh, it got more more and more difficult. Uh, And so, you know, leading up to Pearl Harbor, um, was anybody actually doing anything about this language imbalance, uh, trying to increase the numbers who, who knew Japanese? Well, a few were. Um, As I mentioned, in the UK, people were trying to lobby the government, but the government wasn't listening. Um, In the US, um, Reichauer, uh, who later became a professor at Harvard and uh, in post-war Japan became the US ambassador to Japan, uh, he had actually grown up um, as a child of missionaries in Japan. So he knew Japanese and he was teaching at Harvard. Uh, And he knew how difficult it was to acquire the knowledge that would enable you to to function in a military setting with Japanese. So he started uh, lobbying the US Navy to think seriously about training in Japanese. Now, his his lobbying uh, landed on the desk of a US naval officer called Hindmarsh, um, who had himself been a, a Harvard professor, but had switched to the US Navy. Uh, What's more, while he was still at Harvard, uh, he had spent uh, a year and a half as a visiting professor at Tokyo University. So he knew 
He had quite a lot of first-hand knowledge about Japan. He'd met a lot of the leading politicians and military people. And so this request from Raisha landed on his desk, and he could see the logic of it. Um, so through that coincidence, um, the movement in the U.S. Navy to get moving with a course of Japanese to prepare for possible war um, took off. And the first co- uh, courses uh, began in October 1941. So that's two months before Pearl Harbor happened. But that two months was actually pretty crucial because um, just as before the course began, the uh, US Navy realized that if they're going to run a course like this, they needed a lot of textbooks. And the textbook they tended to use was Naganuma's uh, Japanese uh, textbooks. And so they asked the US ambassador in Tokyo to send over 50 copies. So they arrived in the US two months before Pearl Harbor. You know, two months later, it would have been impossible to get them. But they got the 50 copies and uh, began the course in uh, October 1941. Meanwhile, the U.S. Army was only a little bit behind and started training male Nisei, people of Japanese extraction in um, in the U.S., not from the West Coast, but uh, from other parts of the U.S. Uh, in Japanese. So that's when the momentum started, um, at least in the United States. But in... Um, in Australia, it started a little bit early in August 1940. Uh, the Australian military started then, so well over a year before the start of the war. So you've got on the one hand the Australians starting first, uh, then the Americans coming in just before the outbreak of the war, Britain and Canada saying, we're quite all right, we've got no problems in this area. And then as soon as the war breaks out, panic comes, um, and they have to rush around to see what they can do about it. Now, uh, after the war started, um how did the British intelligence make up for their their uh, Japanese training? You used the examples of Bedford and SOAS, which is the School of Oriental and African Studies at uh, London University, I think. So how did they do it there? Well, um, those two operations were quite separate. Um, the Bedford operation, the Bedford Japanese School, was entirely secret. And it was put in the hands of somebody who most people would think was utterly unsuitable to do the job. 65, just looking forward to a nice retirement with his wife and children. And then all of a sudden he gets asked to run this course. He did know Japanese. He'd been in Japan uh, in the early years of the 20th century, but he hadn't been in Japan for 32 years. So he didn't have an up-to-date knowledge of spoken Japanese, but he did have a good knowledge of military Japanese. And as a naval officer, he wasn't going to cause a security problem. So he was asked if he thought it would be possible to run a course to teach people Japanese in six months. That's six months, not six years, right? Six months. And he wrote in his diary, it sounds impossible, but it's worth giving it a try. This scheme would, with most people, have have been a failure. But he turns out to have been an utterly inspirational teacher. Many of the students who took his course uh, later became some of the most famous professors in their fields uh, in the UK and some in the US. And several of them wrote in later life that he was the most inspirational teacher in any field that they had ever encountered. So he was clearly the right person in the right job. But his name was Oswald Tuck. And he decided this is only going to be possible if we focus firmly on the goal, which is to train people to be able to read diplomatic and military messages in telegraphies, the language of of telegraphs and and wireless communications. So he cut out all that 
vocabulary about flowers, cherry blossoms, geisha, and all the rest of it. Uh, how to order a cup of coffee in a restaurant. All that was cut out. He also cut out all colloquial language. That's irrelevant. He focused solely on the kind of stunted grammar used in cables. Um, so through that ruthless exclusion of irrelevant material, he was able to train people in six months so that they could then go to the decoding center at Bletchley Park and start on day one uh, translating decoded messages and beginning to decode themselves. So that was absolutely uh, extraordinary. SOAS was also pretty ruthless. Uh, SOAS, again, their objectives were different. They weren't really training people for decoding, but they were training people uh, for particular roles. So they had separate courses for army and navy people. So for the Navy people need to know the Japanese words for battleship, for torpedo, and so on. Now, the Army people don't need to know that. They need to know the, the Japanese for howitzer and for machine gun and all that sort of thing. So the vocabulary was uh, entirely separate. They were also training people in some cases to deal with written materials and in some cases with oral materials. So those who were doing the oral really didn't learn much in the way of uh, kanji uh, or of kana because they needed to be able to learn with their ears and then listen to what they were they were hearing and interpret it straight away. For example, um, Japanese pilots uh, communicating with each other or with their base were, of course, speaking in in. Japanese. They weren't speaking any code. You could only speak in, in your language. Um, so they were trained to listen into this and then immediately write down what they were listening. So again, ruthless exclusion of what you don't need. And some people were trained even to deal with handwritten Japanese. Um, this will probably come as a surprise to many of your listeners, but uh, whereas uh, the American, British, Canadian, Australian armies in the field took typewriters with them. So when a general is giving orders, they're typed out, duplicated, and sent around. Now, in Japan, um, Japanese typewriters are far too cumbersome uh, to carry around. So most orders were actually handwritten handwritten and then duplicated uh, on the field of battle. So most of the material that you might find on a battlefield or might find when you overrun the enemy's position is going to be handwritten. And as most of your listeners know, handwritten Japanese is not a joke to read. But you need people able to go there, you know, read it then and there. Um, and so that needed special training in how to read handwritten Japanese, plus the grammar of, of military Japanese and the vocabulary. So, you know, by tailoring the courses to the very specific uh, intentions that the um, organizers had um, they could they could train people to fill select roles um, and the same thing to some extent was happening uh, in the United States so um, the one difference is of course the United States had a lot of Nisei um, second or third generation Japanese who could come in and help with the teaching and they were used more and more in the US programs especially when it came to spoken Japanese you know there weren't there were hardly any uh, Japanese in Britain uh, before the war, certainly no Nisei. Um, however, the British government asked the Canadian government to send over some Nisei, um, and they were used in the training of uh, the, those people who are going to be listening to, for example, the pilots in the air. There were some Japanese women in Britain who could have been used, but uh, as most of your listeners will know, the distinction, particularly in the 1940s between male Japanese and female Japanese is really quite substantial. And it was not possible for the um, female Japanese who are living in, in London to record uh, credible, for example, pilot speech uh, and then use it to training. So it, they needed to have men who were able to 
to use um, more military uh, choices of words um, and tone of voice and so on. So it, it was but by being completely ruthless um, that these programs were, were incredibly successful. It's hard. I mean, I spent three years learning Japanese uh, to get my, my BA. Um, the idea of doing it in six months uh, is terrifying. Um, and people did find themselves under a lot of pressure. And so many of them wrote memoirs afterwards and said, those six months were the hardest six months of work I did in my entire life. Um, but we have to remember, you know, they, they were learning Japanese not for fun, and not because they wanted to read the tale of Genji or to read uh, Haruki Murakami or something like that. They, they were learning it um, to take part in a war. And uh, if they got the answers wrong, people's lives could be lost. Um, you know, so there was a hell of a lot hanging on it. And they really hung on in there. And I think, I mean, the people who did those courses were remarkable um, in what they managed to learn in the six months or a year, whatever it was. But uh, also the teachers who managed to inculcate that um, and inspire their students uh, were also remarkable people. Indeed. And did these training uh, prove effective? Uh, how did the military put their skills to use? Okay, well, they were um, the, the, the graduates of all these courses were used uh, all all over the theatres of war in the Pacific and in the Burma campaign uh, and so on. I can give you a couple of examples. There were just thousands of them that uh, uh, that I've come across, and a few of them are more I put in the book. Um, but one of the uh, more surprising uh, places where they were sent was the island of Mauritius uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, well to the east uh, of Africa. Now, why Mauritius? Well, if you think about the place of Mauritius, between Mauritius and Japan, there are a couple of islands in Indonesia, but otherwise nothing else. And Mauritius has a mountain that's 5,000 feet high. So if you place a listing post, a wireless listing post up there, you can listen into messages in Japan. And there was nowhere in India uh, that could do that. Um, there was no way in the United States that could do that um, because the distances were greater or there were mountains in the way. So Mauritius was a fantastic listing post. And the they were picking up um, many Japanese messages, translating them and sending them on. The messages were sent to to India, to British headquarters in India, to Britain, and then to the United States um, military. Uh, and it's recorded that President Roosevelt himself was actually asking, what are the latest messages from Mauritius? Because he knew that was a pretty crucial hub where these messages were being picked up, uh, decoded, uh, translated, and then sent uh, all in, in, in fast time. Um, there were many others in the Burma campaign um, towards the very end of it. Um, in fact, in uh, June or July uh, 1945, not long before the end of the war, but people didn't know that, um, there was an attempted Japanese army move um, to escape from the British and Indian uh, and American forces that were gradually moving east to liberate Burma. And a young uh, British army lieutenant um, was handed a group of documents that had been found uh, on the bodies of some Japanese soldiers. And gruesome, yeah, it's gruesome. They had some blood on them. But as he looked at them, he realized these were the whole battle plan of the Japanese army in trying to escape. And he couldn't believe what he was looking at. And so what he had first of all was to get the gist of it, type it out, um, and send it. Um, it was then retranslated later, but 
um, he needed to get the basic information uh, out straight away. And that really changed the end of the, the Burma campaign, all thanks to one man knowing enough Japanese and handwritten Japanese, remember, um, to be able to figure out uh, what this is and realize uh, its importance. And uh, one final example, because um, I've been talking about land-based warfare so far, um, U.S. ships and British ships uh, began to find space tiny space on their ships for intercept officers so that as ships went into battle or approached Japanese forces, they could listen to the chatter, um, they could listen to the conversations of any pilots and in real time uh, hand over uh, to the Navy and the Navy pilots exactly what they they were picking up. So these were some of the many areas in which uh, they were active. In some cases, we don't really know what people were doing because it's still covered by secrets. Um, there are still secrets from the war that are not being released. Others uh, took their activities with them to the grave. They, they were told to be, keep things quiet, and they did. Uh, but some of them, enough of them, wrote memoirs um, or wrote uh, private accounts for their own family. And it's, I've drawn a lot of those because they provide the kind of human part of the story, which gives you just a snapshot of a couple of incidents during wartime where you can see the crucial roles played by these people who had gone through crash training courses in Japanese and now are finding themselves on warships having to listen to what's going on. That's fascinating. Um, And I want to return to a point that you mentioned earlier about uh, the training by the second generation Japanese or Nisei. And you mentioned US, Canada, and then they shipped some people to uh, to Britain to help them train. So what were their roles in the Japanese learning of the allied countries? And I guess what I'm interested in mostly is how were their roles viewed? How were they treated? How, how important were they in this whole operation of training for Japanese? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's uh, a really sad part of the story, really, that... Um, Although the U.S. and Australia in particular had a huge natural asset in the Jap- people of Japanese descent leaving, living in their, their territories, they were not viewed as an asset. They were instead viewed as a threat. And so they were locked up or, or they were uh, deported to Japan. Um, and it was quite a while um, before the potential of the Nisei uh, was recognized. But let's remember that um, many Japanese uh, Americans, people of, of Japanese descent living in America, grew up in a Japanese-speaking family. So they knew family Japanese. Maybe or maybe not, they could do some reading of Japanese. Um, that was by no means guaranteed. But even if they did, could read Japanese, it would have been fairly uh, basic for the most part. So if they were going to be of use in the war, they also needed to be trained. Um, you know, they had a basic knowledge of the patterns of the language, some vocabulary, but they needed to acquire a lot of military vocabulary, which they would never have acquired at home. They also needed to understand the rather clipped, almost classical style Japanese used in military communications. That's why the US Army set up its uh, first course in November 1941, aimed at a small number of of um, Americans of Japanese descent to train them, to give them the skills they needed to be able to be more useful. And as the war went on and doubts about the uh, loyalty, the patriotism of uh, Americans of Japanese descent began to recede, um, they began to be used more and more. But the slightly shameful part of the story is that almost all the Nisei uh, were not 
promoted to officer rank. They served as uh, sergeants for the most part. Um, a few of them um, did achieve officer rank. One even became a colonel, but that was a tiny minority. Whereas most of the Caucasian American um, uh, interpreters and translators and codebreakers were given officer rank as a matter of course. Um, nevertheless, um, the Nisei did a huge uh, lot of work um, in all theatres of the war. In uh, India, for example, and in Burma, um, the British asked for a contingents of Nisei to help with um, sorting out the huge amount of information that they had, because Nisei could skim through documents rather more quickly um, than British-trained linguists could do. In the end, the production of a Polish translation uh, in military English uh, was left for the most part to uh, the English officers, but a lot of the 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 basic work, the dog's body work, if you like, uh, was done by Nisei, who, who made huge contributions uh, to the conduct of the war in, in Australia, in the New Guinea campaign, in the Burma campaign, uh, and so on. Uh, many of the names are recorded, and some of them have left their memoirs behind. So um, it's uh, partly a shameful story, but in the end, um, a lot of the Nisei uh, were rewarded uh, for their huge contribution, and in in post-war life, their their contributions were were recognised, and um, it was an important part of the the ling- language war effort. Yes, and I do feel like um, the roles are often overlooked when we talk about the Second World War now. So I think it's really great that you highlighted their contributions in your book. Uh, now, after the war ended, were these people who were rigorously trained within although such a short amount of time, what did they do, what these trainees do with the skills that um, may have seemed less useful after the war? Okay, well, I, I, is that those who were sworn to secrecy um, really had to, to look elsewhere, um, but that was by no means all of them. Um, you say these skills were not necessarily useful, but for most of them, um, imagine a boy uh, brought up in uh, Idaho or in rural England. Uh, suddenly, you're you're coming to grips with the language you had never even thought of before, and by the end of the war, you've not only acquired a good mastery of that language, you've also been uh, to places uh, far, far from your normal horizons of expectations. You've had to become familiar with a complete world, the world of Asia to put it uh, very briefly. And for many of them, this was a, a, a really life-changing experience. Uh, even if they didn't do anything more with Japanese, um, many of them completely changed the trajectory of their lives. Others found what they had learned to start with just whetted their appetite for more knowledge. So a sizable number of them uh, went into do PhDs uh, in Japanese. And you know, that's how... The programs in Japanese in the US, in Canada, in Australia, in Britain, and elsewhere started is with people who were trained in the war um, and then wanted to take their knowledge experience uh, further um, and became enthusiastic teachers of Japanese uh, in their turn. Most of the names of the leading American and British academics in Japanese studies of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s came from that background. So, you know, those people um, found their lives changed by this experience and they became the really important founders, founding figures of, of Japanese studies. Um, as uh, There's a very specific example that, that uh, might interest your, your listeners, and uh, that is 
the story of John Chadwick. Um, uh, John Chadwick was um, a Cambridge undergraduate studying Greek and Latin when he uh, was called up into the Navy. Um, at first, he was serving as an able seaman, the lowest of the low in big warships. Um, but finally, somebody noticed that he'd been at Cambridge and he was assigned to uh, intelligence and was uh, made to learn Japanese. And it was that experience of... Uh, decoding Japanese, so we say, and decoding messages written in Japanese, that then he put to brilliant use after the war because he, he went back to classics. You know, he didn't become a Japanologist, but he went back to classics. And the problem he was wrestling with was a language called Linear B, which is written in a strange script um, akin to Greek, um, but nobody had been able to decipher it, knew what it said. So he applied the code-breaking skills he'd learned in the war to that, and with one other person called Michael Ventures, the two of them managed to break this language code and suddenly make it possible to read all these texts written in, in Linear B. So that, that's one example where it's not Japanese, but it's the, the mental gymnastics that you had to do as a code-breaker that enabled him to, to make that crucial breakthrough um, back in the world of Greek and Latin, which was his home. That is amazing. Um, now, looking back, all that so you mentioned uh, in the beginning of the book that you spent many years writing this book. When you look back at all these years, what were some of the biggest um, obstacles that you met in uh, surveying through the archives or interviewing people? And I guess more importantly, in preserving the accounts of all the people involved in this uh, Japanese training and decrypting during the war. Um, you you uh, use the examples or you use the stories of many figures, names who, uh, many figures whose names we haven't even heard of usually. So, uh, what or whose memory does this book try to keep? Okay, um, let's first of all deal with the uh, the hurdles. One of the hurdles is, of course, official secrecy. Um, and, you know, although we're talking about the Second World War, um, however many years ago, um, there's still official secrecy covering some papers. I've not been able to see them. Um, but there are ways around some of these problems. For example, there's one secret report um, uh, which was written in 1945, um, which is not available in the UK. You can't see it. But then I discovered that a copy had been sent to the US and I found it in the National Archives in Washington and they, they sent me a microfilm. So it, it's ridiculous to keep it secret in Britain if you can get a microfilm from the US. So some of these I managed to find ways around, others I couldn't. So secret is one thing. The second thing was identifying the people because uh, the, the habits of the military and also more widespread social habits in, in the pre-war West were to record initials and surnames. Uh, and it, or if you, all you've got is initial and surname, uh, it gets a bit tricky trying to track people down. Um, for example, of all those who attended the Bedford School, uh, in the end, I managed to track down all but two. Um, the others I, I managed to find using various tools. Um, uh, for, ex uh, some, for some of it, I used Ancestry.co um, or .com and, and managed to find uh, some people that way. I found, managed to find various other ways of, of extracting the identities of people from, from other archives. And so I, I was able in the end, but it took a lot of work to find them. And having established uh, one name, 
you know, then most likely that person is no longer with us. Some were. I managed to find some. I managed to find, for example, a very charming old man, James Sutherland, up in Peebles on the Scottish border. And I went up to interview him as soon as I found found him. Most of them were, were not living anymore. So my next task was to find their descendants. Uh, that was perhaps a lot easier in the case of men than women, um, because in the case of women, the habit then was to change surname. Um, and so I really am looking for people with a different surname. I did in the end manage to track down even some of those. Um, and that's what led me to um, the interview with a 98-year-old woman in a nursing home. Uh, she'd been active on Mauritius, uh, de- decoding and translating, and she had a photograph album with her. So that was a wonderful exposure. So, you know, finding people. Um and the third difficulty is the destruction of records. Huge number of records that were thought to be irrelevant or um, uh, unnecessary were destroyed. Uh, others were destroyed for reasons of uh, cover-up. And uh, so that, that really was quite a big problem. Um, uh, for example, all the records of the U.S. Navy Language School, the original records, uh, have been destroyed. Um, but in the University, uh, the University of Colorado Boulder, um, they've been able to reconstitute a lot of those archives and they've gathered information from other sources. So they, this, that's where the archive of the U.S. Navy Language School active during the war, the school which Donald Keene, for example, uh, attended in its early days are. So, you know, there, there have been a lot of hurdles. Um, as much as I've been able to, I've tried to overcome those hurdles. And the final question you asked was about uh, whose memory. Most people write write about wars in terms of generals, or they used to write about generals. And then uh, about 50 years ago, people started writing much more in terms of the ordinary combatant, uh, what it's like to be on the front line. Um, They used their diaries, their letters home. Uh, They even interviewed them in in later years. Um, But wars are fought not just by generals and fighting soldiers. There are also uh, the nurses, there are the doctors, there are the cooks, there are the translators and the co-breakers. So um, I... I've tried to give these people uh, a place in the story of the war, a, a place that was mostly hidden for reasons of, of secrecy uh, after the war, but um, really in many cases played uh, a huge role um, in enabling the generals and the fighting soldiers to actually do their job by giving them the intelligence they needed. So those people also deserve to be remembered, and that's what I've tried to do. And I think you you did an absolutely amazing job in this book. And it sounds like you plan on further uh, developing this project. Yeah, um, I mean, to bring my research to a bit of a stop during the lockdown. um, um, But I'm still trying to find some other sources and um, I'm trying to decide what I'm going to do with them. Um, uh, That's a matter I'm... I need to get back to the archives first. Um... And that's what I'm waiting for. Indeed. I very much look forward to reading the next book on this project. Thank you so much for your time and this conversation. You're welcome. I much enjoyed it. Thank you. And for our listeners who want to find out more about the LA country's effort in learning Japanese and decoding the messages, the Japanese messages, uh, make sure you check out this new book, Eavesdropping on the Emperor, Interrogators and Codebreakers in Britain's War with Japan by Professor Peter Kwanitsky. I am Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode.